Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, August the 23rd. This is episode 2941 of the Survival Podcast. And today I came up with a kind of a quirky, rhymy title. Considerations of Fermentations. Yes, we're going to talk about fermentation today. I am not specifically, I may give you some ideas and thoughts about how to do certain fermentations, but I've, I've covered a lot of that. And if you hear something that you're like, I want to know how to, you know, uh, make meat. There's entire episodes on how to make meat, or I want to know how to make wine, or I want to know how to make a cider, or I want to know how to, um, I want to know how to make sauerkraut, or I want to know how to make a yogurt cheese, or I want to know how to make yogurt. Like there's whole episodes on that. So what I really wanted to do today, and this came from a question that came in on MeWe, is kind of go over more of like, here's all the wonderful things that fermentation can do. And whenever I talk about fermentation, most people jump straight to making alcohol. And indeed, if you go to um, the website today and pull up this episode, because I know a lot of you listen on Stitcher or uh, a Breeze or on iTunes or whatever, right? Um, podcasting 2.0, we just talked about, like, there's all kinds of ways people listen. And a lot of times that means people don't go to the site. But if you do, or if you see a posting in social media, you'll see an image that always comes along with every episode. And today's is the properly attributed quote to Benjamin Franklin. This quote often is swapped in beer for wine. But as I've, I've talked about before, our founders were much more drinkers of whiskey and wine and ciders than they were of beer. The United States actually became a beer nation, heavily beer-drinking nation, after Prohibition. After Prohibition. Prohibition is when all of the uh, the wonderful cocktails came. Manhattan, Old Fashioned, etc., martinis. And that's because if you were bootleg and hooch, it was easier to, uh, to move one 750-milliliter bottle of, of vodka than like two and a half cases of beer, right? That, that that's what did that, right? It just it was easier to move that stuff around. Plus, we made a lot of really low end, kind of shitty bathtub gin style stuff back then, so you had to make it taste good. But before prohibition, I'm not saying we didn't drink beer. I'm not saying we didn't make beer, etc. I'm saying the United States was well back in the days of the founders, specifically. Um, you know, taverns were often referred to as cider houses. And if they were drinking a uh, a distilled beverage, kind of the uh, the, the go to uh, drink there was rum, because there was so much shipping from you know what we call the West Indies up into uh, New England, etc. So it, we we weren't quite the beer drinkers that I think people envision us of at the time. So when Franklin made this quote, he used something that we drank a lot of, and Mr. Franklin, being quite fond of the French was quite fond of wine. And he said of wine, wine is constant proof that God loves us and loves to see us happy. 
Now, I think Mr. Franklin was a bit jovial, and he managed to live a very, very old age despite being quite an imbiber. And I want to give a disclaimer here at the beginning that you cannot drink too much alcohol without, in general, suffering some pretty, um, pretty nasty consequences. But I will say of wine, wine is my favorite thing to drink when I want to contemplate things. When I want to relax, when I want, when I want to not just contemplate the world or the scene in front of me, but I want to contemplate the flavor of the drink. When I want to contemplate something that accompanies it, like cheese, maybe a hard meat, etc. And I do think that there is a certain happiness, and I think that's more what Franklin was speaking of rather than revelry and being completely knocked off your ass. Because one thing about wine is wine is one of those things that'll sneak up on you. It's real easy to drink four glasses of wine. It's It's not so easy to deal with the consequences. But, yes, so when I say what I'm about to say, I'm not putting down making alcohol. We're going to talk about that as part of what we can do today. But I'm talking about fermentation as a whole. And there's a whole world of fermentation that's more to do with what we would call culinary purposes. Uh, there are certain types of bread that is absolutely fermentation is at play. That would be sourdough. Um, yogurt is a form of fermentation. There's no alcohol. We'll, we'll explain in a little bit why that's the case. Um, chili paste that are fermented. And plenty of things we won't talk about today are fermented. Fish sauce, a consummate ingredient of Asian food, is a fermented product, right? Fermentation plays a huge role in human history. In fact, man has been using fermentation for longer than man has known what the hell fermentation was. You know, at some point in history, likely a somebody had a, you know, kind of like we call a wineskin today, but they didn't call it a wineskin yet in whatever language that they had because there was no wine yet, but something like a wineskin. And they put water in it, and because they had access to something like honey, they put honey in the water because it made it taste good. Or maybe they put honey and berries in the water. And then that was their kind of like their energy drink, right? And maybe they drank some of it. And some of the natural yeasts that were in the honey or the berries and the natural yeast in the human mouth combined. And then they put the lid back on the wineskin and they, they forgot about it. it. It got laid somewhere. When they found it, what's going on? It stretched out tight. You opened it, gas came out of it. Hmm, I don't know about this. And you smell it. It's funny. I've never... And you drink a little bit of it and go, man, it's so bad. Drink a little bit more of it and next thing you know, you're transported into some other dimension as far as you're concerned and it's magic. It's magic. Or somebody took some flour and water, maybe a little bit of salt if they even knew what to do with salt yet and they mixed it up and they made a dough-like substance. And then they were supposed to do something with it, but they forgot. And it got exposed to some sort of natural yeast or lactobacterium or both. And they came back and it had expanded. And when they cooked it, they had bread. Magic. And so many things like this. Put salt on the vegetables. The vegetables sweat. They stay in a container or a crock of some kind. And now they have a sour taste It's quite pleasant, and it lasts longer. Magic. They knew it wasn't magic. Those who figured out how to do it on purpose knew that there was a procedure that would cause it to happen. 
kind of like alchemy, but it wasn't really alchemy. They knew there was, like, we are not, we weren't as stupid in the past as I think that we have been led to believe by modern academia. We had the same brains that we have today. It was possible for something's going on here. They just didn't know what it was. They didn't know that there were yeast, and they didn't know there were lactic bacterium, and that they both did kind of the same thing, but with different results. And for as long as we have been working together as humans to, to collect and store foods, we have stumbled into different types of fermentation. And next thing you know, you have sauerkraut or escabeche or yogurts. And every indigenous society that we're aware of has some form of fermented food, not just some form of alcohol. There's tribes in South and Central America still of indigenous cultures that they do make alcohol from certain fruits that are picked, and the women chew the fruit and spit it into a thing, and then it turns into alcohol, drawing on the natural yeast on the fruit, but also the yeast within the human mouth. I'll pass on that one, but alcohol and nutritional use of this spans the globe, including cultures that, as far as we know, never communicated with each other. It's a really interesting thing, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we do, let's go ahead and talk about our two sponsors of the day real quick. First of all, ButcherBox.com. You know, just going back a year now, I can't tell you how many emails I got from people that ButcherBox was a godsend to them. When the lockdowns happened, food shortages happened, etc., the fact that a giant box of meat showed up on their house once a month... Maybe it wasn't all the meat that they wanted. Maybe it was, you know, they didn't get all their meat from that or whatever. But it was a big piece of it just kind of put on the shelf is not to worry about. And a lot of you guys like me figured out while that was going on, hey, you know, uh, becoming a new customer at that time, they shut off they shut off registration for a while. But it was real easy to just add some more stuff to your box or make your box from a uh, average box to a giant box. So a lot of you guys did that. And then when it ended, you kind of went back to a regular size box or what have you or took some of your add-ons off. Like, ButcherBox kind of was a great thing for people in that realm. But on a day-to-day basis, it's great because you've got grass-fed beef, pastured pork. You've got uh, pastured poultry. You've got some really great seafood. Just excellent stuff at really fair prices delivered straight to your door. Check them out today, ButcherBox.com. Remember, MSB members, you get a discount. It's 10 bucks a month. 10 bucks an order. So if you do six a year, that's 60 bucks. If you do uh, 12 a year, you get a box every month. That's $120 on a $50 membership. Great sponsor, great product. Check them out today. It's like having your own professional shopper to go get your meat and bring it right to you. Next up today, the Wealth Steading Podcast with John Pugliano. Um, I met John in 20, it was either 2011 or 2012. And I didn't actually hear from him again for like a couple of years. And he reached out and told me he was doing this podcast that he had asked me about. I don't even remember this, but he asked me about doing a podcast by email. I was like, well, just effing do it. He's like, well, how do I do this? And I just figure it out. Go and get it done, right? Because I get that from people all the time. And he did. And we started talking more and more. And then he started you know, coming on the show for interviews and answering questions as an expert council member. Uh, and he's just been so valuable to this community. And I have come over the years to like respect to have tremendous respect and to just have massive respect for his insights into finance. And he shares these insights for free 
on the Wealth Studying Podcast. You can find it at wealthsteading.com. John is also an investment manager. He's an amazing guy. Check him out today. Again, you can start everything as far as learning more about John and his work at wealthsteading.com. All right, let's get into this. And, you know, funny speaking of wealth, I want to say something today before we get into this fermentation topic that is going to have to do with Bitcoin, but it's not like go buy Bitcoin. It's just an observation of what's going on. So I've noticed that right now there's stories coming in that people in Afghanistan that are stuck there are paying for and buying things with Bitcoin. And some of them have no access to income in Afghanistan. They do have access to people with money in the United States or some other Western country, but services like Western Union, etc., it's all shut down. You can't send somebody through the banking system, through international wire, whatever. You can't get money to people in Afghanistan right now. But you can get Bitcoin to them. I thought that was interesting. But today, while I was taking care of the ducks, that thought was rattling around in my big old head. And um, I started thinking about a story that I heard back in the 90s. And I don't remember who this was from. And I don't remember the guy in the story, the character's name. So we'll call him Lou. But the story was basically, and this was somebody that was advocating, this was, this was about building wealth. And it was about, and I don't remember even who, who the speaker was, right? I just remember the time frame, because I was, you know, driving around, working accounts, selling in the structured cabling and network business. So this is, this is going to be mid to late 90s. So we're more than 20 years ago. And yet I remember this because the story was so impactful. And Lou was a man who was living in what was at the time South Vietnam. Of course, there is no longer a South nor a North Vietnam. And it was coming up to the time of the fall of Saigon. And anybody with eyes to see could tell that this was going to happen. And, and Lou had worked with the Americans such that his, his best hope would have been he would have been thrown into a, a, a re-education camp, and his, and his worst fear would be that he would be shot in the head. And he had a wife and, and, and a child, and his, he was a shop owner, he was a merchant, and he lived in Saigon. And he realized he could get his family out, and all his wealth was in South Vietnamese currency. And what he, was, what he did is as quickly as possible... He moved his wealth into a little bit of American money to pay his bills on the way over, but gold. And he was able to carry almost all his wealth in small amount of gold that he was able to, you know, in small, small bars and coin break up. So if he got shaken down, maybe they would get one piece, but not all. And he was able to finally get to the United States. Now, this is the 70s. But he had about $7,400 worth of gold on him. And he was far more wealthy a man than that in Vietnam. But again, his wealth was destroyed as the country fell apart. And so that's all he was able to get out with. And because he brought it in gold, if he had ended up somehow diverted to another Western nation that was also safe a safe haven for him, had it been Europe, had it been Canada... It wouldn't have mattered. He would have still had value on him. But he got lucky. He hit the. If you, if you have to leave your your country and go to another country anywhere in the world, make no mistake about it. For all my criticism of our government and 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 many of our people, there is no better place to be 
right now in the world than the United States. And I would say if you're going to make the case that there are other places that are good places to be, if you're really rich, there are places better to be. If you're trying to become wealthy, this is where you want to be. So Lou got here with his 7500 bucks. I think I told a very long story. But what it ended up being is that Lou was able to invest the wealth that he brought with him over time. And again, 7500 bucks, a lot more money in 1976 than it is in 2021. But in just a decade, he became a multimillionaire primarily by investing in real estate. And he rebuilt way more wealth than he had ever had in Vietnam. But without that ability to make his wealth portable, he would not have been able to do that. I don't even know if the guy that wrote the audiobook that I was listening to on cassette tape back then was telling the truth about Lou, whatever name he said. If that was the real name, there's no way I could know that. But I know the story's actually true because I know similar stories of similar people who got their wealth out of Vietnam and other places around the world through the use of gold. That, that, that does happen and has happened. But I would say that for every person that got out with their gold, there's someone who got killed for their gold or shaken down for their gold and got out with nothing. If you have wealth in digital form, you can have nothing on you, and your wealth is wherever you are. And there's no one to shake you down unless they know for a fact that you have it. When you get shaken down in these third world shitholes, you're shaken down for what you possess. Now, if you're walking around with a Bitcoin wallet on your phone, that might be different. That might be different. But if you're smart about it, I'm going to tell you right now, there will be stories like Lou's story from people that got here from Afghanistan and were able to preserve some of their wealth. And today you do that with Bitcoin. And if you want to know why they call it digital gold, that's why. That's why. It's not the reason people think and the reason people object to. Anyway, let's talk about this fun subject today. Fermentation. So, for the purpose of this discussion, not as an organic chemist, right? For the purpose of our discussion today, we're going to talk about two types of fermentation. Lacto-fermentation and yeast-based fermentation. And yes, you can have a substance fermented by both. It can and does happen. There's a beer that's made in Belgium called Lambic or Lambic, depending on how you pronounce it. And it is exactly that. It is a combination of yeast-based and lactobacillus uh, fermentation. It gets a sour flavor from the lactic acid, and it gets, you know, a boozy effect from the yeast. And so it's. I think it's important when you use the word fermentation for people to understand what's going on without giving a chemistry lesson, just the most basic understanding of what's going on. Lacto-fermentation occurs when specific bacterium, specific families of bacterium, find themselves in a place where they can get access to carbohydrates, i.e. sugar, that are simple enough for them to break them down. And when that happens, the bacteria basically feed on the carbohydrates, the sugars, and they produce something when they do that. They produce lactic acid, and there's your tart flavor, your sour flavor and sauerkraut, and they produce CO2, gas. What this does is that food actually becomes less carbohydrate-dense 
Some are unfermentable carbohydrates and remain behind, but proteins and fats would not be fermented, and not 100% of the carbohydrates would either. But that means that a food that's been fermented is going to have a lower carbohydrate profile. I'm not going to get into you know keto and all that shit today. Just That's just good to know. But that's what's coming out the other side. So bacteria feed on the carbohydrate, bacteria produce lactic acid, and CO2 is a byproduct. And therefore the carbohydrate content goes down. Yeast-based fermentation is going to yield alcohol in CO2. So yeast are much more rambunctious little guys, much more aggressive little guys, much faster-acting little guys. They find sugar, and as long as like the, the mixture that's going on there is not something that's toxic to them, it's, it's not got too much acid or something like that, right? They're like, oh, oh, oh boy. But something interesting about the little yeasties. When you take Flashman's bread yeast and you mix it in a dough and you stick it on the thing and you cover it and it rises, you think, oh, the yeast are fermenting the dough. Nope. Nope. Yeast create alcohol and go into fermentation once the oxygen is used up. The first thing they do is they start multiplying and they just make CO2. They create an anaerobic environment, which is w one of the reasons that making beer, wine, mead, etc. is so safe. You're not going to kill yourself doing this if you have yeast. Because they're going to first make an anaerobic environment, and then they're going to dominate that environment. And once they get that environment the way they want it, like they set up the party, and then, whoo-hoo, let's party. And they start chowing down and munching on that sugar. And they start farting out even more CO2 and ethanol. They also make some other forms of alcohol, but their primary alcohol they make is the one we can consume. And we get... You know, inebriated on too much of it, but yes, it's the one we can consume and we can process through our liver called ethanol. And they make that. And when they have consumed all of the carbohydrates that they can consume, they stop. They run out of fuel or they will actually poison themselves at some point. And it's less of a poison and more of a sedation. So the alcohol level comes to a certain threshold for, for an alcohol-producing fermenting yeast. And it's like, I can't do this. It's like they're drunk like, you know, like a, a stereotypical old drunk from a black-and-white TV show. I'm done, you know, i got to sleep, right? They go to sleep. They pass out. And the reason I say that is if you bring a fermentation to the alcohol limit of a yeast and then you dilute it with water, it will often take off again. Meaning the yeast will kind of wake up. Oh, shit. Alcohol level's down. We can go back to work until they bring it up again if it's possible, if there's enough fuel left. So it's either an alcohol level or it's running out of fuel in general. There's some other things that can do it that kind of shut things down. Temperature can shut it down. Certain other chemistry can shut it down, etc. But eventually it shuts down. It's done. And then the yeast settle to the bottom, and then what you have left over is an alcoholic beverage. And it's either good or bad, depending on how well you did your job. And those are your two primary types of fermentation, and they're certainly the ones we're talking about today. Let's go a little bit through, like, well, what's the purpose? Why do we do this? So lacto-fermentation has basically 
four primary functions for humans. I'm sure there's more, but there's four big ones. First is preservation. So if we take a, a head of cabbage, it has a, especially once it's cut up, a pretty limited shelf life. If we cut it up, put salt on it, and it draws the water out, and it's held in the right environment where it can do its thing, and the bacteria that are on that cabbage lacto-ferment, they start munching down on those carbohydrates, and they start changing the texture and, and flavor of the cabbage to turn it into sauerkraut, and we make a sauerkraut, it will hit a point where it will have a much longer shelf life. And the cooler we keep it once it gets there, not only the longer will it last, but the more we'll slow down that fermentation. If it's kept too warm, it will keep fermenting until it will become not so good to eat anymore. It'll be safe to eat, but not so good. It'll start to smell bad, etc. There's kind of a sweet spot that we want to kind of either hold it or stop it if we can. All right, so preservation is one. Flavor is another. Some say it's an acquired taste. I think it's more that we have acquired non-human taste buds, or non-human taste preferences at this point in our society. The fact that we can take corn and make one of the sweetest substance known to man out of corn and then put that in everything that we consume, and children start consuming this before they even have all their teeth, we're starting to rot their teeth out before all their teeth are in, means that we do not perceive flavors and tastes the way that let's say native humans were designed to perceive flavors in their natural uh, diet. If we go, if we roll everything back just a couple hundred years, so many of the things that we start eating as children eat our whole lives to the detriment of our health, those flavors don't exist. Those concentrations of sugars don't exist, and they certainly don't exist available 24-7, 365. So yes, if we live in the jungle... There'll be time when the dates are available, and the dates are really sweet and have tons of sugar in them, and we have a genetic predisposition. We'll shove as many of those things in our little face as possible while they're available because they'll fatten us up for the lean time. But in general, and as soon as we move outside of the tropics, the availability of high sugar goes down. Right? You're, until we figured out how to manage bees, like you had to have some balls to go ripping a tree apart and getting some uh, honeycombs out of it, Right? Okay, that was like the most concentrated sugar we could really get our grubby little hands on. Berries and fruits were nowhere near as prevalent as now that we have orchards and things like that. And even what was available, again, seasonal and limited. So we ate, and this is not even my bias toward keto or, what, or Ken Berry's bias toward keto and proper human diet. We as humans, and we know this through anthropological studies, we ate mostly vegetables and protein fat sources, protein-based fat sources. So we ate lots, like if, we, if you live near a river or a stream or an ocean or an inlet, you ate lots of shellfish. Every settlement we find, there's huge, massive banks of shellfish remains. And if you lived on the plains, you ate plains game. And so you ate, you ate meats, and then you ate vegetables. Until the dawn of agriculture, we didn't really eat a lot of grains, And things like nuts and seeds were limited because of just how much work it takes to make them to where you can eat them. And so that's what we ate. And if you were living that way, and you take something like kind of boring leaf vegetable, like a cabbage, a brassia, and you ferment it, 
I think that you know, there's there's definitely to a large percentage of the population a definite improvement of flavor. And if we pair it with something like meat, you know, pork and sauerkraut, which we'll talk about more later, is a great flavor combination. Nutrition. I don't think we knew we were doing this. But a lot of fermentations increase vitamin availability. The yeast also produce certain nutrients and vitamins as a byproduct, or they become more bioavailable. There, for instance, there's, there's plenty of vitamin C in sauerkraut, far more than if you ate just straight cabbage. So I think that while our, our ancestors may not have directly understood what the word nutrition, when we use it today, would mean. They did know these people eat, you know, our fermented foods, and they get sick less often. They and, and back then, really, it would probably be a much more marked difference because you didn't go down and get some Flintstones chewables. So I think that there's plenty of evidence that man kind of noticed there was a health benefit, and that health benefit came through what we call nutrition today, and even if they didn't use the word, they understood the concept. And then the other thing that lacto-fermentation can be used for is leavening. So when you make like a sourdough bread, and you incorporate like a sour, sourdough starter, right? there may be some wild yeast in there, but there's also bacterium, and of course the bacterium are going to produce CO2 as a byproduct, so we're going to end up with being able to raise up bread, to leaven bread. And and again, I'm not going to say that this is it, this is definitive, but this is a good way to think about it. Now, yeast-based fermentation. Oh, we get drunk. Well, hold on. We do make, with yeast-based fermentation, alcohol for consumption. So we can make beer, we can make wines, we can make meads, right, etc. We also make alcohol for preservation. So if we go into distillation, we can consume it, but we can also use it as a preservative. So we can take things like fruits, put them under alcohol, and not only do we have boozy fruit, that fruit also lasts pretty much indefinitely. All right. We can make alcohol for fuel. This is a pretty modern invention, but if you distill alcohol to a high enough percentage of alcohol by volume... It'll burn. And, and long before we figured out something like, hey, we can do this and we can run an engine with it, we figured out, hey, we can do this and light a lamp with it. At a time when, you know, that was one way to, to, to have a lamp, another way was wax from bees for a candle or go out and harpoon whales and boil down their blubber. Like, there's a time in history before we understood that we could get petroleum out of the ground the primary reason we slaughtered whales was to light lamps. I don't think a lot of people realize that. So the fact that you could use fermentation to produce something that would burn in a controlled burn that would produce light and heat, it's a pretty big discovery. And lastly, I think a lot of people are confused by this, but we do use yeast for leavening. So like I said, you take and you mix up a bread mix and you include yeast in it. And it rises, and you think, oh, it's fermentation that's going on. It's important, I think, to know that it's not. Because some people are like, well, yeah, it makes alcohol, but it burns off, so it's okay. No one gets drunk on a sandwich or whatever. Okay, no one gets drunk on a sandwich. But the reason no one gets drunk on a sandwich is that when we put yeast into a dough, a bread dough mix, and we get that rise, and then we bake it, the yeast never actually starts fermenting. 
I know some of you are screaming, heresy, heresy. No, I'm not a heretic. Not on this anyway. Um, what's happening is that yeast is multiplying. It's creating CO2 as an, a, a byproduct, and its goal is eventually to make enough CO2 to create the anaerobic environment that it needs to start consuming and converting. And it never gets there. It never gets there. We take those poor little yeasties that created generations upon generations of children in just a day. And just at the point where they're reaching the peak of their civilization, we murder them. Those living creatures, we place them into an oven and we bake them to death. That's what you vegans do, even when you don't put any eggs in your, uh, in your bread. You're murdering the little yeasties. It's truth. Okay, let's talk about some different things we can do with this process, right? To, to just kind of broaden our thoughts about what we can do as homesteaders and what we can do as just people looking to make our lives better and take more control over our lives. Fermented vegetables, I think, are kind of the easiest uh, entry point for people. One of the things about it is it's very quick. It's, it's, it's you know, five to ten days for most things to be far enough along that eating them makes a lot of sense. And then at some point you're kind of like, that's perfect, and you want to throw that in the refrigerator. And again, we don't really stop the fermentation process. We slow it down into almost a complete sleep. The colder we go, but if we freeze it, we ruin it, right? So um, if we take... We make some sauerkraut, real simple. It's just cabbage and salt in a jar with a loose-fitting lid. We don't even worry about any special airlocks or anything. We do it like Grandma did, and we set it in a cool, dark place, and it ferments. And once we smell it and taste it and we like it, we put a tight lid on it, throw it in the back of the refrigerator, try not to forget about it. It'll last a very long time, and it'll very slowly continue to get more fermented and more sour but it'll last a really long time in the refrigerator. If we close it up and keep it in the back of a cool, dark cabinet through the winter time, it'll last quite a while. A lot longer than cabbage would last in that environment without the fermentation, but it will continue to ferment, and if it's not you know, as cold as the refrigerator in the back of that cabinet, it will ferment more quickly and become more sour more quickly. But it's so easy to do. And I think if you want to get started... The best, most approachable book on this is Fermented Vegetables by Christopher and uh, Kristen Shockey. And that last name is S-H-O-C-K-E-Y. And if you go to the Survival Podcast and pull up today's episode, uh, which again, if you're in the future, episode 2941, searching for 2941, you find it right away with the search feature. Um, I will have a link to that book for you. Um, Wild Fermentation by Sandor Katz goes through a lot of other types of fermentation, doing it completely with wild fermentation, um, and it's definitely worth checking out as well. I'll throw a link in for you guys on that one as well. But it's probably the easiest way to get started is make some sauerkraut. And I would definitely say if you like sauerkraut, make sauerkraut. I have heard from almost no one who's ever tried to make sauerkraut that failed. And if it does fail, throw it away and make some more sauerkraut. Cabbage is cheap. And it's basically salt and cabbage. I don't want to give specific recipes out or anything today, but you can look up kind of what to do. But in general, I pretty much do it by eye at this point. Uh, you can say you know, toward so many grams of, of uh, cabbage, use so many grams of salt. But basically, you know, I put some salt in, layer it, pack it down, put some more cabbage in, layer it, pack it down, add some salt, etc. And you end up with 
sauerkraut. Anybody could do it. We didn't have scales to, to you know, exact gram calculations back when we started making sauerkraut uh, thousands of years ago. Um, the next thing I think to make when it comes to making a fermented vegetable is escabeche, which is basically when you get into certain vegetables that don't really have enough water, like cabbage has a ton of water in it, you might want to go with a brine method instead of just salting the vegetables, putting them in a the jar. You want everything you make when you do a vegetable ferment under the brine. In, in the book I mentioned by the Shockies, um, what they say is easy to remember rhyme, right? Keep it under the brine and everything will be fine. If you have the, the, the vegetable under the, the, the salted water, you are anaerobic. You're going to get fermentation. You're not going to get problems, right? So when you go into making something like an escabeche, or another thing I love to make, and I, I actually started making this after I started making escabeche, is pickled garlic, um, a brine method. And then you can, again, this is something you can look up. You're not going to remember if I tell you anyway. Uh, but I'll put some resources in for you if, where to find to make brine. So you basically dissolve salt and water and pour the water over the vegetables in the jar. And you let them ferment. And again, you can use kind of airlock technologies and stuff like that. I like to use that. It's kind of an extra level of assuredness. Or um, there's a great fermentation crock that I make my sauerkraut in. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well for you. But you literally can do this with nothing but a mason jar. And you make sure that you have enough water for everything to be covered. And you put your uh, your lid on the mason jar, your standard canning lid, and then tighten your ring down till it's just barely tight, and then barely back it off, so that there's enough that as gas builds up from the fermentation, it can escape. That's really all you have to do. Again, I like like the mason tops lids and stuff, some resources I'll put in for you, uh, or the pebbles they call them. They're like a little glass thing. You put them inside, and then you put the lid on the top. They're all great, but you don't absolutely need them. And when I started making escabeche, which if you go into a lot of really good kind of hole-in-the-wall Mexican restaurants, they'll usually have an escabeche that is made from a, a standard pickle, uh, meaning they use vinegar. And it's going to be jalapenos, carrots, and onions. But escabeche is like, it's like saying making sauce, I guess, or making a condiment, right? Like everybody has their own. That's just a very standard common Mexican, uh, Northern Central American is that combination of three. So when I started making it, I would use like half jalapenos. I don't like my, I, I don't think pain is a flavor. So I like spice. I like heat, but I don't want all heat. So I started using jalapenos, but half of my jalapeno, I would have jalapenos and half sweet peppers. And then I'm like, you know what else is good? Garlic is good. So my escabeche is basically equal parts of peppers, onions, and carrot. But the peppers are half and half sweet and hot. And then about, I don't know, as many as I feel like garlic cloves. And it's delicious. You can either leave the garlic cloves whole or you can split them in half. Well, when I started doing that, I, I realized <laughs> that, like, I never ate the garlic cloves while I was eating the escabeche. Maybe one might slip out onto my plate, but, like, I would eat the escabeche and I would save the garlic. And then that garlic was for cooking and for putting on salads and just nibbling, right, this kind of spicy garlic. And so I was like, why don't you just, like, make it, like, 85% garlic, throw a couple of rings of jalapenos in there and make basically spicy fermented garlic. And, oh, my God, folks, you got to try this. 
because you get all the beauty of the garlic, the value of the nutrition from the garlic plus the fermentation. And remember, like when we're talking about fermenting vegetables and and other things using lacto fermentation, every time we eat some of that, we're, we're consuming like a kabillion beneficial bacteria, lactobacillus, that belongs in our intestinal tracts. And it's absolutely the case that our stomach acid will kill a lot of them, but some make it in there. But the other thing that happens is, think of it like this. There's a reason that it's fine that a chicken eats an egg, as long as chickens are not eating eggs that are not damaged, right? So you don't want chickens to eat the eggs that they lay because, well... And then you won't get your eggs. Your chickens, like if you have an egg-eating chicken that's chronic, that needs to become cocavin. That means it gets in, it goes in the crock pot. In case you didn't know, it's a slow cooking French method of cooking chickens, especially old laying hens or old roosters. Now, um, but if you have a an egg that's damaged and it's cracked and it has ooze out of it. That's actually a danger in your chicken coop. It can cause contamination. It can attract insects. It's it's not good. It's better that it go away. So the chicken eats that. Now, the good thing about a chicken eating an egg is everything you need to grow a chicken is in an egg, right? The chicken is the thing that makes an egg. So nutritionally, it supports a chicken very well. Not something that needs to be going on on a daily basis, but you, you see what I'm saying. When you're consuming a fermented product like a yogurt or a sauerkraut, you're, you're not just introducing the live bacterium. You're, you're literally feeding the existing gut bacterium. Okay? Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, next up, I, I think that yogurt is one of the easiest things to make. And I'm going to give you the very basic, simple method of making yogurt. And if you want to know more, you can kind of look it up. The most basic method is you take whole milk, because if it's not whole milk, it's not yogurt. I actually like to even add heavy cream. So to a gallon of milk, if I'm going to make yogurt, I'm going to add about um, two cups of heavy cream to it to even thicken it more. And then you want to heat that to 110 degrees. Some people will scald it because they're afraid of toxins or whatever, uh, especially if you're using pasteurized milk, that's ridiculous anyway. But you bring it to 110 degrees, and then you mix in, uh, per quart, at least one tablespoon of good quality yogurt with active cultures in it. You can buy yogurt cultures, etc. You can get real scientific about this. But you can go to the store and buy plain yogurt, and as long as it says contains active cultures in it, a tablespoon to the quart, so if you're making a gallon, that's four quarts. If you add some heavy cream, maybe it's you know more, eight tablespoons of yogurt mixed in there. And then you can, if you want to, just take the, take the, the, um, take the, you know, you have that yogurt heated up, warm some water to about 120 degrees because you're going to lose some temperature. Dump it in a cooler Fill the jo fill, fill mason jars that you should clean very well with the yogurt, the, you know, the yogurt milk cream mixture. Set the lids on them loosely and set them in the 110 degree water now and cover up the cooler. It won't stay 110 perfectly, but it'll stay warm enough that as long as you don't like put it outside in the freezing cold, about 12 hours to 24 hours later, you'll have yogurt. 
my preferred two methods of doing this, and I own both of these tools, so it just makes sense to use them. Use a sous vide circulator, like an Innova or a Joule. Set it to 110 degrees. Set your yogurt jars in there, and as long as you want to make your yogurt the way you want it. Okay. The other one is you take your jars. They don't need to be in a water bath. That's just a way to convey the temperature. And a um, an Excalibur dehydrator. There's a very accurate thermometer on it. Set it to 110 degrees. <clears throat> Put your jars in there, and you'll be good. Some people do it by putting their oven on warm and then putting the jars down in the warmer uh, drawer at the bottom of the oven. There's a lot of ways to do it. You can look it up. But it, it is that simple. Basically, introduce yogurt cultures, and you can choose yogurt to do that, into warm milk and hold it at a warm temperature, not too hot, not too cold, for 12 hours to, 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 to 18 to 24, depending on how much tang you want, and you get yogurt. And... Every way I gave you is more sophisticated than the most traditional ways of making it before we had any of this. You know, we didn't have any of these things. Yogurt is ancient. Then once you have yogurt, or you can go buy yogurt, and, and what I'm about to tell you how to do, any plain, it has to be plain yogurt, okay? Um, any plain yogurt, and you want... Not low fat and certainly not no fat to do this. It'll work. It'll just suck in my opinion. Whole milk, which is kind of hard to find, plain yogurt. You don't want to be playing with fruits when you're doing this. And again, it has to say active and live cultures on the label. right? And you, you'll get that yogurt and it will already be far superior to all the low fat, no fat bullshit, not yogurt, yogurt. And then you want to take cheesecloth, or my favorite thing to use for this, and I'll put a link to where you can get them, because uh, they're so much more flexible than, than cheesecloth is. They do so many other things. I ca they're called flour sack towels. And you just basically take the yogurt, dump it in into the flour sack towel, kind of bunch it up so it's like a sack, tie a string to it, and hang it somewhere where when it drips, whatever drips out will not make a mess. That's way. Right? Okay, And that's going to be nice and tart and delicious and full of bacterium as well. And you want to let that hang, on average about 12 hours, get you the perfect consistency and the flavor that you're looking for. And there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. Um, one way you can do it, you can just kind of hang it uh, from the faucet of your sink. And if you don't want to save the way, you can just let it go down the, the, the drain. And that's kind of a waste in my opinion, but you can do that. Um, I've hung it up outside when the weather's right. And just put a bowl underneath wherever it is. Another easy way to do it, you take, you, you want to use a towel because if you just use a strainer, it's going to kind of ooze through the strainer, and that's not good. So you take your flour sack towel, put it in a colander, like a spaghetti strainer, put your uh, stuff in there, and then you can just kind of fold it over, and you can even, to kind of make it even a little more firm, take something with some weight and like a small plate. So you take like a, a small plate, put it on top, and then set like a jar of spaghetti sauce on top of that and put the strainer inside another bowl. And as long as the strainer has like feet on it or you can put some in the bowl to lift it up enough where it's not going to sit in the way, you get a great press and a great, you're letting all the extra moisture out. So one thing we're doing, we're thickening it by removing the extra moisture, the extra water. But the other thing we're doing is since it's at room temperature, it's you, just like it fermented to become yogurt, We're letting it ferment further, and it comes out kind of like a, a firm cream cheese. 
And there's an interesting thing about this stuff. It doesn't really melt. It's a lot like making a farm cheese. If you've ever made a farm cheese where you use vinegar instead of rennet, um, it's, it's cheese-like, but it doesn't melt like cheese. Which means if you do something like you take some really great peppers, whether they're jalapenos or like a small sweet stuffing pepper, and you make a really great mix with it, and you stuff a pepper with it, and you roast it, the cheese doesn't bubble out and, and go away. And it does suck up like all the beautiful bacon grease you wrapped it in. And so that's just your basic yogurt cheese. It's also known as Lebna, and there's some other names for it. It's, it's made all around. Anywhere they make yogurt, they make yogurt cheese. Now, it's, it's like a canvas. It's like a blank canvas, and we can do things with it. My favorite one, um, black pepper and garlic. So you put some black pepper. How much? I don't know. As much as you want. Black pepper and garlic. Basil and garlic is also freaking amazing. But I, my, my buddy David has made it where he takes dehydrated vegetables like peppers and tomatoes and stuff and, and grinds them up to a powder and mixes the powder in so it flavors the whole cheese. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, basically anything you can come up with. I've made it with walnuts. I've made it with pecans mixed into it. Um, again, basil is delicious. Dill is good. Uh, dill and pecan is actually surprisingly good. Cashews are good. Like There's so many things. Like Anything you can think of, if you think that would be good with cheese, put it in there. Try it. And the, the way to do this really is when you first dump it into the, the flour sack taller cheesecloth. Mix it in then, because at that point, the, the, the yogurt is far closer to a liquid, and everything mixes in so easily. And I've made this at a lot of the workshops. I haven't done it for a while. Maybe I'll do it this fall for the fall workshop. I've made this with people, and it, they're amazed at how easy it is. I just go buy, like, the big cups of uh, plain yogurt, this whole milk yogurt, and I'll make three, three kinds. I'll have, like, somebody cut up jalapenos for me, somebody cut garlic for me, somebody chop some basil for me or whatever, and I'll just make three different kinds. And I'll do the whole thing, like, not even as a, a session. I'll do, I kind of do it, like, during free time. And in, like, you know, with some help, it's, like, ten minutes. I've made three batches. And we just hang it from the deck, you know, and we put a tub underneath it, and the ducks eat the way when it, when it drips out. And then people have it on, like, you know, peppers or uh, celery or ca uh, crackers or whatever. Oh, amazed by how good and fresh and delicious this is. Uh, I think it's Lebanon or somewhere in the Middle East is where the term Lebanon comes from. And they will do it with like nuts and honey on things, and it's it's delicious, and it's it is such a nutritional powerhouse. And if you're low carb, uh, yogurt, as long as you're not eating lots of it, is already better than a lot of other dairy product. And then when you do this, because remember, all those lactobacillus are taking those leftover carbohydrates that are still in the yogurt, and when they're going num 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 num, and they're eating it. So you're pushing the carbohydrate load down even further. So if we're putting it on crackers, that's one thing. But if we're putting it on, uh, we're either eating it, I mean, it's delicious just to eat in little bits and things like that. Like, you can eat that even if you're kind of a low-carb person. You just need to you know, take into account there are some carbohydrates in it. We can also make um, chili paste, right? We can make chili paste and hot sauces. I kind of see those as different than uh, fermented vegetables because they're more of a condiment type thing. And there's, there's lots of recipes out there for them. But like one of the uh, most famous of these is called gochijan. And gochijan is made, and I've never made gochijan. I, I really should because it's so sweet. I'd, I'd be interested in making something less sweet than commercially available gochijan. I don't really worry about the sugar in gochijan because it's um, you don't eat it by the spoonful. Like I don't think you would do that. I don't think you would uh, 
I guess some of you could, but me, I would, uh, I'd have a meltdown uh, from the heat. Like, I don't think it's that hot, but by the spoon, yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically chili and sugar and garlic and fermented. Uh, I think there might be some soy in some versions thereof of it, um, but I'm not really sure about that. But it is delicious, and it it is an incredible aid to cooking. It's something you use, again, as a condiment, as, a, as an ingredient. It's not something you eat straight down. And it would be interesting to me to make something with less sugar in it, just because then you could use more of it. And hot sauces, like Tabasco sauce, is fermented. I'm not saying all hot sauces are fermented. I'm saying the original Tabasco sauce is made in a fermentation process, and it's it's kind of oversaw a lot like aging whiskey. Like there's like a master taster who goes around and tastes the, the, the Tabasco sauce in the barrels that it ferments in and decides when it's finished. So we can make hot sauces. We can make sourdough breads. I'm not a bread guy, but if you are, I would say that I, I would much prefer the person – Make their own sourdough bread, lacto fermented. Let's let's start breaking down some of those carbohydrates. Let's improve digestion. Let's reduce overall sugar, etc. Um, with sourdough breads, and 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 so that's something you can look into if that's what you want to do. Of course, beer, wines, and meads, and this is what most people are familiar with. And I have to tell you, I have not made beer in five years. I like beer. I don't drink a lot of beer anymore. I don't drink as much alcohol as I did even three, four years ago. When I decided to lose all the weight and keep the weight off, my alcohol consumption plummeted. But I'm not a prude, and I'm not one of these people. Like, I did worry a little bit because I pretty much drank every day. And I worried when I decided I wanted to lose weight and improve my health that I would have to quit drinking. And I want to kind of give my alcohol disclaimer here. You might have to. I have a video that I did when I was doing all my keto videos that explains, like, if you're fat, you are not going to become not fat while drinking regularly. You can't do it. Um, it is a biochemical fact that if you have alcohol in your system, all the sugar that's in your blood has to wait for the alcohol to be processed. Then we can get rid of the sugar. And then we can, then we can get rid of the other things that are going to end up as sugar, like the protein that goes through gluconeogenesis and becomes sugar. And then we have the fat. And then, then we can start worrying about burning fat off the body. And so, like, if you really want to kill yourself, your drink of choice is like vodka, you know, vodka cranberry, screwdrivers, uh, the margaritas they sell in, in restaurants and bars, the big giant ones that are full of sugar. Like, sugar and alcohol together are horrible for your system. But it doesn't mean we can't occasionally kick back with some good cheese and some good. Uh, good sausages and even a little bit of bread and have a really great heavily oaked Chardonnay. I like that. I think it's good. Or a really great steak and a really great like red Bordeaux or a really great cab. Like, yeah, like I'm, I'm not a prude, but I was worried that when I was like, okay, well, what I'm going to do is like for the first month, I'm not going to drink at all. And then I'm going to you know, drink socially and responsibly. I, I, was, I was worried I wouldn't be able to. It, it turned out I, I was. If you ever try to make that change and you can't, and I'm being short on the alcohol stuff today, partly because of that, don't. Then you need, if you need to not drink, to not drink excessively, it is better to not drink. 
You can live without alcohol in your life. You cannot live without a liver. Just plain and simple. And if you're overweight, you really need to rein this in at least for a time because you are going to find that you will be self-sabotaging constantly. Okay? Um, but beer, wines, and meads are basically taking whatever... The only thing that's different in making beer, wine, and mead is the fermentable, the, the, the place the sugar comes from. With beer, in general, we're coming from grains. We're going to come from barley, uh, wheat, rye are your three big ones. And most most beers and ale, well, I should say lagers and ales, they're all beers, um, are going to be made with barley as the primary grain. It's just traditional. Uh, or, or wheat. And usually most wheat beers are not actually pure wheat. They're a wheat-barley blend, and almost all rye would be as well. Um, there are some microbreweries today making um, full rye ales, and I actually find them to be delicious. I, I really do enjoy them. Um, but if you want to make beer, the easy way to get started is with extract, and you can either use a liquid malt extract, which is like a thick, syrupy goo. Really easy to use, but it sticks to everything, and whatever it comes in, you're never going to get it all out. Uh, it's it's like really sticky, thick, thick for honey. Honey is kind of what it what it's like. Um, or you can use a dry malt extract, which is really easy to use. Or you can start learning how to do partial mash or full mash, meaning we start with the grains, and that's the most cost effective method. If you get set up to do all mash brewing, most people I know that end up setting up as all mash brewers eventually get to the point where they're able to make like 15 gallons of beer at a run, and you can make beer for almost nothing. And I mean really good beer. Beer that is like $10, $12, a six-pack microbrew, you can make for $1.50 a six-pack. I mean, honestly. Now, when you go into making extract beers, you can make exceptionally good quality beers. You can start learning about using specialty malts. These are things like caramel malts and black patent malts and things like that, where if you're making stouts or whatever, uh, that you can add. You can basically put them in a, in a sack. And basic, I'll tell you the best thing I found for doing this, there's strainer bags that are like a dollar for straining paint available at Home Depot. And just in case there's anything on them or whatever, I always boil them first and then dry them out. You can put your specialty grains in there. They're fantastic for you put them into the, to the, what's called the wort while it's heating up until they get to a certain temperature. You pull them out. You squeeze them out. You bring your wort to a boil. You complete the brewing process. We're not going to go into that today. And then you can, you can use those grains. Uh, they can be used as spent grain for... Um, like mixed into bread dough and stuff, it's actually pretty good. I had some pretzels made with them one time mixed into them. It was pretty good. You can feed them to your livestock, or you can compost them. The, the choice is yours. Um, and if you're doing full grain brewing, then all that spent grain can be used in any of those ways as well. Um, but if you get into beer making, it's its own thing. And what you'll find is... Keeping everything clean and sterile is the most important part. If you ever get a really bad beer, it's probably because you got some sort of wild yeast or bacterium in it, and it didn't work well for the flavor profile. Seldom does it. Um, there are there are beers made that way on purpose, uh, but in, in general, if you're sitting in Jacksonville, Florida, or Dallas, Texas, or Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and you get a contaminated batch, it's going to be, they call it Band-Aid beer, and that you can take it from there on your own. But... It's bottling that is the pain in the ass. So here's my 
advice from least good to best when it comes to if you're going to become a, a, a beer maker. Least good bottle in normal size beer bottles, right? Your 12-ounce bottles. You get a thing called a bottling wand. I'm, again, I can't go into all of this today, but basically you, you're transferring after it's all fermented into a bottle. You leave a certain amount of space. When you do that, you use some priming sugar. This is going to get the yeast going again. You use a capper. You cap the bottle, and then you set the bottle in a cool, dry place, and the yeast will start to ferment. Uh, the, the little bit of sugar that you've added, it will produce CO2. It will pressurize it. It will carbonate it. It will get cloudy for a few days, maybe a week. It'll clear out, and it'll settle to the bottom. And now you have beer. You can chill it, pour it into a glass. Don't drink it out of the bottle because that fermented little bit of yeast, it, it, it'll, it'll make the beer not taste so nice. It won't be bad. It just will be cloudy and not as good. So you want to pour off of that when you serve the beer. That's the worst choice because the most bottles per uh, batch. If you do a five-gallon batch of beer, that's about 60 times. You'll have to fill those damn little bottles and cap them. That's 60 bottle caps. That's 60 bottles. That's 60 bottles to wash. you got to wash them before you do this. It's a lot more work. Next best, also toward the bottom of my preference, the 22-ounce big bottles or anything that's bigger than that. You can even use, I wouldn't do this, but you can use wine bottles and cork them and wire them down. But 22-ounce beer bottles, it's not fully cut in half, right? but it cuts it almost in half. And most people will find you don't drink a beer. You might drink two beers, but you don't drink a beer. And even if you have somebody over, you take one bottle and you split it between the two of you, and you just get 11 instead of 12 ounces, right? Uh, so it's, it's easier because there's less bottles. There are some in-betweens. But if you make a kegging system and you learn to use like the, the Coke or Pepsi style kegs and you make what they call a kegerator and you are a traditional beer maker and you have bottles and bottling equipment, you will give away all your bottles and you will keep your bottling equipment because occasionally you might want to like tap off a couple bottles, cap them and take them to a friend's house or give them away. But you will never bottle a batch again once you can do kegs. Because you fill one keg, you don't have to prime it. Okay, when you when you fill a keg of beer, you don't have to prime it. You seal the keg, and you charge the keg up with CO2, and you let the CO. And there's there's ways to speed it up. There's longer duration versions, but basically the keg is charged by the the the, the uh, CO2 system, and that way you don't have a lot of extra residue, and it's easy, and it's fast, and it's so stupid easy. I'm telling you, if you're going to be a serious beer maker. Make a keg system. Wines and meads are a different animal. I have whole shows on wine, and I should say wines, meads, ciders. Um, but they're, they're basically the same animal. A mead is a fermentation that's primary sugar source is honey. A cider is a fermentation whose primary fermentation source is a fruit but not a berry like a grape or a blackberry or something. Generally we call anything made with those a wine. And cider and wine is it's a very hard thing to draw a clean line. If I make a strong if I make apples into juice and I fortify it with more sugar and then I ferment it, and then I serve it still and clear and delicious, is it cider? 
Yeah. Is it an apple wine? Yeah. I, I think we're splitting hairs and we don't really need to worry about it. We can use the words as we feel they are understood within our circles. Because apple cider is a, as a form of is apple wine. Basically, if it's a fermented fruit juice, it's a wine. If it's a fermented honey product, it's a mead. And certain fruits, when we ferment them, we tend to call them ciders. We'll say it's pear cider, apple cider, etc. Then we can start blending. If we make blackberries into a juice, we ferment that into a fermented product until it clears and we drink it. It's going to drink a lot like a really good red wine, like a Cab or a Merlot. And so most people would call that blackberry wine. If we wanted to, we could say it's blackberry cider. No one's going to take away our, you know, our right to make more, right? Our our, our brewing or our venting card, right? Um, if we mix blackberry at 25% with apple juice at 75% and make that, it's a blackberry apple cider would be how most people would say. And you should tro you should totally do that. You should totally do that, and you should add some sugar to get. And I can't again. I can't get into like specific gravity and all that stuff today. But you should to kind of push the alcohol up to about eight to nine percent. You should totally try that. Just saying, you can do apples or apple juice, blackberries, and some sugar, and ferment that. And you don't really need blackberry juice. The the fermentation yeasties will extract all the goodness from the blackberry. Um, excellent mead. Okay, it's mead, but what if I do mead and I use honey and water and my standard recipe, 2.5 pounds of honey to the gallon of mead. You can go three, you can go two, two and a half is kind of like the universal sweet spot in my opinion, All right? Um, when you make that first batch, and if you're fermenting a gallon, you're doing small batch mead, You're not going to have that gallon container full. If you do, you're going to get a mess. It's going to when it when it goes into ferment and the, it foams up, it's going to overflow. So I do this cheat, and I do it with ciders, and I do it with meads. Um, it's a little harder with ciders because you're using apple juice, so you're going to then water it down. If you do this with mead, you're not going to water it down. And I want you to think about this. If I make a mead with two and a half pounds of honey to the gallon. What is in that other than honey? The answer is yeast, which is a very, very small thing, and water. Okay? So if I do my, when you do fermentations like this, you do what's called a primary and a secondary. So you have your first fermentation. You, you mix up your honey and your water, and you use, you know, some heat to dissolve it, and then you add it to a container. We call that a primary fermenter. And then we add yeast to it. And the yeast, that initial explosive reaction, remember, it's not even fermentation yet. It's the yeast turning the environment from an aerobic environment to an anaerobic environment. It's the yeast multiplying. Maybe they're doing a little bit of consumption, but mostly they're multiplying and they're making CO2. And then they get the party set up, and then they party. And that's when you have that rolling fermentation. That's when you have days and days of little tiny bubbles just going and going and going and going. That first that just happens like almost immediately, it's like within a few hours, that's the, that's the build-up to the party. And so we're going to leave some space in that fermenter. And how much? 
if you I like to use the one gallon apple juice bottles and and just below the shoulder where that bend comes is kind of where to go. So you do that with two and a half pounds of honey, and if it doesn't blow over, when it's done with its primary fermentation, and then you take a siphon and you move it to a second container, just another bottle, same kind of bottle, cleaned out, and you 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 it comes up to just under the shoulder, a little bit less than that, right? Because you lose a little bit. And then you take clean, pure water, like out of a Berkey filter, and you bring it all the way almost to the top. What is the difference if you had had a one-and-a-half-gallon container, brought the level to one gallon, and transferred out of there from a ratio standpoint? And the answer is there isn't one. And that's why I can make a mead that doesn't taste watered down, even though I added water to it, because I, I designed the recipe initially as though I was going to end up with a one-gallon yield. That's what I based the recipe on. And if you think that's a little too light for you, then you can go to three pounds of honey. Three pounds of honey in about you know, 70, 75% of a gallon will ferment. It's not too much honey for it to ferment. When you get the secondary fermentation going, because you've now reduced the alcohol volume as a total, it will have a very aggressive second ferment, but it won't blow the lid off. It won't come up through the airlock or anything like that. And then eventually that ferment will end. And then what I love about the one-gallon jugs, what do you what do you do if you really want to like shut down the fermentation and totally settle to a completely crystal clear mead? Put the fermenter in the refrigerator. Okay? Now what I do then, the way I do my fermentations in these jugs, I take that plastic cap that comes with it, I drill a hole in it. I put a stopper in it, and I put an airlock you can buy from like a homebrew place. I'll see if I can find some on Amazon, put it in the show notes for you. And so it's got an airlock. That, and you fill that airlock with water, and while this fermentation's going on, that, that airlock goes bloop, 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 like that. That airlock sticks up about two and a half, three inches. Putting that in the refrigerator, pain in the ass. So I always save some caps that have not been drilled. Make sure you clean them. I just use really hot tap water. Technically, you should probably, you know, like throw them in some simmering water in a pan or something for a couple seconds to totally sanitize them. I don't do that. Our forefathers didn't have that option, okay? And I, you put that lid on the bottle and just stick. This is called cold crashing. And you can do this with your cider, your wines, and your meads in small batch. One gallon, stick it in the refrigerator. Every day, open it. And if it's still got some fermentation, it'll go pssst and let some gas off. Open it up till it gases off, close it, stick it back in the refrigerator. Keep doing that until you open it up and there's no gas for at least a week. Then you want to siphon it off the residue. There'll be from that secondary ferment, there'll be another layer of like and it's really fine and it's really easy to stir it up. So you take it very carefully out of the refrigerator, set it on the counter, and if it stirs up at all, just leave it alone. Let it sit for a couple hours. Nothing's going to happen. Very carefully open it. Take another clean one-gallon jug. Transfer it into that jug. You know where you set your, your bottle full of mead or cider or wine or whatever? Set it right next to the sink. Put the bottle you're transferring it in the sink. I have a little footstool. I set it up on a footstool. It has a little bit more thing. I use a, It's called a, a mini racking cane. I'll put a link to that in the notes as well. Stick that in the bottle, push it down once, siphon starts, and then you get completely clear mead, cider, or wine goes into the other jug. Okay, you have a couple of options now. 
If this is not something you're going to store long term, it's going to be kind of a party meat, a session meat, or a session wine. Clean the cap. I know this sounds like sacrilegious stuff. Put the cap on the one that you've transferred off of the sediment. Stick it in the refrigerator. Pour it when you want some. You've bottled. You're done. You're finished. It's beautiful. Like, this is not something you're going to age for five years. This is a session meat. This is a, like a, 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 just like a, 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 a dinner wine, right? Or a dinner cider. Fine. You want to put it in bottles. I'm going to sound like I'm sacrilegious again. But if you or somebody you know enjoys drinking, especially a lot of the wines that come out of Australia, South Africa, etc. by now, some of California that have a screw, a metal screw top lid, if you're going to do a still mead, you're good. You're golden. One gallon makes five-fifths. Fifth is 750 milliliters. So like uh, Kim Crawford, Savernier, uh, Sauvignon Blanc wine, their bottles are perfect for this. Siphon into them, put the cap on them, age them. No problem. My next favorite bottle to use are the ones that are made for beer that have a swing top with a rubber gasket and they lock down. Make sure you sanitize, clean them, whatever. Put them into those, and those are good for aging as well. I think it's really classy to get wine bottles and a corker and cork them just if you do that. Remember, if you store a corked bottle upright, long-term, the cork will dry out, and eventually there will be an air exchange, and you will end up with having a poor-quality product. You could even end up with a vinegar. That's why when you see wine stored in, in expensive locations, it's always on its side and the, the, the wine or whatever is up against the cork and it keeps the cork conditioned. And that's the proper way to store wine. So if you're going to store it long term, you're going to cork it, do that. This is why a lot of these like really good wines are starting to be in screw caps. Like it used to be like a, uh, a, purgative, a purgative, right? If you said like a screw cap wine, like this is gross. Like it's just like... Night Train or something, or Mad Dog 2020 garbage or something. Now some some of the best wines in the world are being made with these screw caps because they will store damn near forever. If you want to do a carbonated cider or a carbonated mead, what you can also do is you can take that one-gallon jug, then we're talking like a plastic jug, like a, an apple cider jug, transfer into it. When you do, add a certain amount of sugar. You can look it up. And then screw that cap on tightly and set it on the shelf. And it will go into fermentation. It will carbonate. It will push the sides of the jug out. It will carbonate just fine. And once it's, you know, been there for probably about a week, throw it in the refrigerator. And that will shut down everything. And as long as you don't wait too long between pouring glasses of it, it won't go flat in that jug sealed in that refrigerator. Something about CO2 in liquid, if you're going to make a carbonated product, especially once you start opening it and using it and you're not using it all, keep it cold. The warmer it gets, the more gas comes out of the liquid. The colder it is, the more gas stays in the liquid. You will have some residue like that, and that's why I would prefer you to move to a bottle, an individual bottle size. So again, the, uh, the bigger or even the 16-ounce swing-top bottles are great for this, um, and they have plenty of um, 
They're, they're plenty strong enough. They're not going to explode if you don't over-carbonate. I have accidentally used standard screw-top wine bottles and made carbonated mead because it, mead wasn't finished. You kind of learn things as you go. It worked. None of them shattered. None of them broke. They're a thin glass. I wouldn't trust it. They're not made to be carbonated, right? What works fine for doing meads that are carbonated is beer bottles with a cap. Everything I said about carbonating mead applies to carbonating cider, except here's the difference to, my, to me. I love still meads. I think still meads are delicious. I hate, I hate still ciders. If they're a true, like an apple cider, etc., I just don't care for still cider. I like some sparkle in my cider, so do what you want with that. Wines, of course, we all think of Champagne. Champagne's actually a region in France, and if it's not from there, it's not real Champagne, but you can carbonate wine. Most of the time, I don't carbonate wines. Last, just I want to touch on this, on distillation of fermentations. Um, people look at things like, you know, whiskeys and bourbons and stuff, Almost everything starts out as some form of vodka. There are differences like, you know, whiskeys can be made with corn or, or grains. Rums are generally, generally made with sugar or molasses or, or what have you. Uh, raw sugar, terminado sugar, etc. But it, it, when you make a rum, you basically have a, a, a vodka from sugar that has a different flavor profile than a vodka from grain. That, that's really all there is to it. The way you end up with like a dark rum or a brown whiskey or whatever is aging on, on, on wood, usually oak, other things, right? I don't want to dig into that. There are ways you can do that, and there are ways you can kind of shortcut that using what are called spirals, these charred oak spirals. You put them in a bottle. Uh, once you make a distillate, uh, what have you, is, is this illegal in the United States? Yes. Can you get a permit to do it to make fuel? Yes. Does it really protect you? I don't think so. It actually puts you, in my opinion, on the map to the federal government saying, I'm doing this over here. What I'll say about this is if you're like, like if you watch Moonshiners or something like that on TV, those guys are not making alcohol ever at all on that show, except like I think the one guy went legit and he has an actual like licensed distillery now, like he's doing there. The whole concept of these guys making all this shit in the woods and stuff is nonsense. It's interesting, funny, non-reality TV, but it's not real. If you're doing that, they're going to come after you. But there are literally hundreds of people in their kitchens, etc., making moonshine and variations thereof with YouTube channels. I think these people are stupid. But it does show that unless you're out like selling it on Facebook or something, if you're minding your own business, if you don't have a neighbor that's going to complain on you or whatever, pretty much no one gives a shit. I've talked to a ton of different law enforcement officers. They don't care. One of my best friends is a law enforcement officer that loves to drink my moonshine. And when you look at the, the volume that you make with a home still, like you know, like a milk can still or what have you, it's not enough that they even – it's the guy that's five miles on over the speed limit. If there's not another reason, I'm not probably pulling you over. You're not worth writing a ticket for it. This is the general – I'm not saying you were not going to ever have a problem. I'm not saying it's not a violation of federal and state law. I'm not saying that you should go broadcasting that you do it. I'm just saying if you really want to learn how to do it, yes, there's a risk there, but the risk is low. 
and that it is a very enjoyable hobby, and it has a lot of utility, and yes, you can make fuel. If you're going to do this, I think you have to sit back and you have to ask yourself, if I have a home permit to make ethanol, okay, and I'm caught with fermented product in my still, am I covered? Yes, you are covered. You are covered. However, once you remove the product from the still and you have it stored somewhere, don't use mason jars, by the way. It kind of screams moonshine, okay? But once you have it now stored in some sort of storage container, you are required by federal law under that license that if it's that you take 2% gasoline and add it to it which will also change the color. It won't be clear. So if you're if you were caught for some reason making it and you had your federal distillation permit, you'd be covered from do, doing the distillation up to it's like 5000 gallons. It's a lot, right? You can do like it's basically like a hobbyist to like make lawnmower fuel or whatever. But if you had any stored and they were able to find that and it didn't have 2% gasoline, your permit would not be worth the paper it was printed on. So is it worth it? That's something that people have to decide for themselves, like if you're going to do this. What I will tell you is you can buy some really good stills. Uh, my favorite still maker is a company called Mile High Distilling. I have gone out of my way to try to get you guys a discount. I found another great one that does copper stills. I, I, I kind of look at still makers like I do mushroom people at this point. They are not good marketers. They do not understand anything about pricing models, and they do not understand the concept of incremental revenue. I have never been able, with any of these people, to negotiate a discount. They do not understand the words that I speak when I speak to them. They don't get it. I don't understand why. They start talking about, we can't afford to discount, and then I'll say, well, then your margins aren't high enough. We have great margins. Okay, then you could, it's, it's like, it's a circle jerk of stupidity. And then these people, you see them take out a full-page ad in a magazine that you know costs them tens of thousands of dollars, and they might not get one customer from it, but they won't give a 5% discount or a free distiller's parrot or something like that away with a, you know, a purchase over $600. Like They just don't get it, so that's why I haven't been able to get you guys one. If you know someone who makes quality stills, that will do a discount. And the little one-gallon ones, they're fine for playing around with. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking like, you know, seven-gallon, eight-gallon stills and up, uh, real high-quality production, thumpers, etc. That is not stupid, that does understand incremental revenue, that does understand having a fixed cost of acquisition marketing plan makes sense, that would understand those words. Please put them in touch with me. I would love to make some still maker a shitload of money and get a huge portion of this audience a great discount on a great product. But I just have not been able to do that. So Jack ran out at the end there. But distilling, I'm just going to say that I wouldn't be afraid to play around with it, and stills are not illegal. Stills are not illegal. There's a lot of things you can do with a still that have nothing to do with alcohol. You can put water in a still and make distilled water. Why do you have a still? I make distilled water. I distill essential oils, right? Lots of things you can do with a still that don't have to do with water or don't have to do with alcohol. And there are ways to say that you're legally making alcohol. I just don't know how much cover it gives you. But it's a great hobby. It's a great skill set. And it is a way to make fuel. 
uh, various levels of fuel. There's certain things you can do to make fuel to the point where you can put it in a vehicle. Um, but it also makes fuel that you can burn. And there's definitely a prepper value there. And I'm going to end with this on the whole thing. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. What the hell is that about? Have you ever sat and wondered, why is there such a thing? Alcohol, tobacco, firearms. Because when shit falls apart, they're your three biggest barter items. Go into a third world shithole, and with cigarettes, booze, or bullets, you anything that you can be gotten done, you can get done. So just, I'll end with that. Anyway, this is a lifelong subject if you want it to be. Or it's a couple weekends and the addition of skill sets. Like you can learn to make sauerkraut and stuff like that and maybe how to make some some simple, easy table wines and meads in a couple weekends. And you can say, I'm done. That's it. That's all I need. I'm good. Uh, I'm going to make a few batches of this and that every year. I'm going to have a cranberry mead for Thanksgiving. I'm going to have a spiced mead for Christmas. You know, maybe I'm going to have a spring mead. You know, maybe you make five batches of mead a year for different times of year. Uh, maybe you drink a bottle or two each year and then you lay it up and you, you can, you can do this really cool. Like, like you can do that like six batches of mead a year. So every other month you have some mead. Maybe you drink two bottles of that with some friends or family and that would leave three if you're making a gallon to lay up and that would mean that those three could age and then you could start when you do two bottles instead of having two new bottles this year's bottle and last year's bottle and it's it's a really fun hobby you can learn to make escabeche and uh, yogurt cheese and whenever you want to make some yogurt cheese literally buy a thing of yogurt to decide what flavor you want it to be mix that in and the next day you have yogurt cheese that's all it has to be Or it could be a lifelong pursuit. There are people that, you know, they get into mead like Michael Jordan and they develop things that are unique to them and like their whole life is, you know, really just about mead. There's people that become, you know, master moonshine makers. I've had some homemade stuff that is up there with anything you can buy in a store for any amount of money. There are people that become experts. Uh, at making beer. I mean, uh, one of my buddies who, who, who's never online, but uh, he's never social, not a social media guy, but his name, a lot, a lot of y'all know him, his name's Hatch. Comes to the workshops, runs the lights and sound in the video and all that for us at the workshops. He is a hell of an all-grain beer maker. Like, so you can get into this to the point where you become really masterful at parts of it, or it can just be a really, really simple, fun hobby. It's up to you. But I think it's something that, And so I've never really done a show like this where I've kind of covered it all and I didn't really explain any of it in depth because I've explained it all in depth before. And if you want to know how to make yogurt, if you want to know how to make beer, like there's so much information. It's so easy to learn. There's books, etc. Step by step walk you through it. There's forums. If you get in social media with us, I guarantee you there's people in this community that will help you. But I wanted to give you this kind of broad view and realize like fermentation and humanity have walked hand in hand for hundreds, if not, I would say for thousands of years. And there's a reason. And it's one of those skills that, like, I guarantee you, if you're my age, your grandpa, if if, if, you're, if, if your grandpa grew up in, in the United States, knew how to make moonshine. I almost can guarantee that. Your great-grandpa definitely knew how. Your ancestors, your grandparents in back, knew something about fermentation. 
They do, they either made sourdough bread or they made escabeche or they made sauerkraut or they made beer or they made wine or they made, made moonshine or whatever. And this shows so much about reclaiming those, that lost knowledge and skills. So pick something from it and run with it. And if you've done some of the things, Pick one more. Keep expanding your skills. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support the show is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Um, today I have an item I just brought you last week. Because they cut the price again, and it's on sale for even less. The Barina LED Grow Lights... If you missed out last week when they're on sale, and if you bought them, I'm sorry. I, I don't. Barina doesn't reach out to me and tell me when stuff's going on sale. All I can do is tell you when it happened. So, the six pack of four footers is now down to eighty bucks for a six pack of the four foot lights. And I, like I said before, when I talked about these like a, a week ago, four years ago, one of these lights would have been a hundred dollars uh, of this quality. Four years ago, maybe five years ago, one light would have been a hundred dollars. Now you got. Six of them for 80 bucks on sale. And the two foot, the smaller lights are six for 48 bucks. So when I, when I, when I got the price alert that these were on sale, I could not bring them around. If you haven't built your indoor grow system of some kind yet, get these freaking lights while they're this cheap. Everything's in shortages. Everything's in short supply. Everything's running out. Ports are being closed down all the time. I've not gotten on the air and been an alarmist, but I mean, I just got information from one of my contacts again today. More stuff. On shortages, more stuff with price increases. I get dozens of emails like this a week. And this is an electronic product that won't go bad out of China. Right? So it's gonna, it's gonna have some point where it pinches off in the supply chain. All these things do. So if you, if you're not ever gonna use them, don't buy them just to have them. Don't think you're gonna lay these things up and make a fortune on them when shit hits the fan. Right? But if you want to build an indoor hydro, aquaponic system, seed starting system, etc., especially as we head into fall, get them while you can. And this price is just stupid cheap. All right, with that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up with our song of the day today. And uh, since we were talking about fermentation, I wanted a song that was kind of fun, that had something to do with some fermented product. And I started thinking about it, and instead of getting anything deep or whatever, just really a fun song. Billy Currington has a song called People Are Crazy. And I've gone long enough today, so I'll just say I think you'll enjoy this song with that. It's been uh, Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. This old man and me We're at the bar and we We're having us some beers and Swapping out on cares Talking politics Blonde and redhead chicks Old dogs and new tricks And habits we ain't kicked We talked about God's grace And all the hell we raised and Then I heard the old man say God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. He said, I fought two wars, been married and divorced. What brings you to Ohio? He 
sit down if I know We talked an hour or two About every girl we knew What all we put them through Like two old boys will do We pondered life and death He lit a cigarette Said these damn things will kill me God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. Last call is 2 a.m. I said goodbye to him. I never talked to him again. Then one sunny day. I saw the old man's face Front page obituary He was a millionaire He left his fortune to Some guy he barely knew His kids were mad as hell But me, I'm doing well And I drive by today To just say thanks and pray I left a six-pack right there on his grave And I said, God is great, beer is good And people are crazy God is great, beer is good And people are crazy Beer is good And people are crazy